But it's a strange Sunday, uh, this Sunday, this first Sunday after Christmas, and a Sunday I find I have to do a lot of uh, wrestling with my own heart. I don't know if that's true for you. Uh, But everything leading up to Christmas is so magical and exciting. And and I'm just a sucker for it. I got to admit, I love all the feel-goods of Christmas. Uh, Everything about it. There's, there's the family gathered together, the gentle glow of the Christmas lights on the ceiling, the presents neatly packaged under the tree, um, familiar Christmas carols playing, and the warm fire crackles in the fireplace. It's perfect. All the talk of peace and joy and hope. Uh, it's everything our hearts long for, just this, this tease. And we love it. It's over the top. It's no wonder that the secular world just kind of takes hold of Christmas and runs with it um, because there's so much there. They make these little movies. I I, I love these. Instead of doing a commercial, these companies do this little video clip of of them making someone's dream come true or uniting a family and and, and all of these, uh, again, just these wonderful feel-good moments and we eat it up um, because Christmas is that time of year, right? When miracles can happen. When the best comes out in everybody and and forgiveness and love flow freely and and there's a season of joy and happiness and then all of a sudden, it's over. It just ends. Christmas is just finished. That pile of perfect presents from Christmas morning, um, it just begins to look ever so dissatisfying, disappointing. Begins that process of breaking down and wearing out. The Christmas tree dies, is taken out back. The lights come down. Family goes home, maybe even with a fight on the way out as old tensions bubble to the surface again. It's back to work, back to a strained marriage, back to difficult parenting, back to a broken, hurting world. And after a week or two of being kind of caught up in the magic, imagining that, that maybe the world really could be a better place, it's back to reality. And we're forced to admit once again how truly fragile those joys were, how ultimately unsatisfying the things of this world really are. And for some of you, um, it's maybe even more pronounced than that. You're not going back to work. You lost your job. You're not saying goodbye To family members, your relationship is more complicated than that. Christmas this year maybe wasn't an escape for you. Um, It was a time that you were reminded more deeply about the pain of loss of a father or a mother, a family member, God forbid, a child. And all of those promises of Christmas are just salt in the wound. How do we deal with that? How do, you, how do you wrestle with those emotions? Well, one popular approach in solving that problem is simply lower the bar, right? Just drop it down a notch and we find something lower down the chain to find our joy in, to find our happiness in, to be thankful for. And we say no matter how bad it gets, there's always something to be thankful for, right? Thankful for what family you have left. Be thankful for the time you did have together. Be thankful for that little bit of savings you did have. Be thankful that at least you're still alive. And sure, it's good to recognize, even be thankful for the blessings that we have, even in in dark times. But therapeutic as that might feel, can we just call a spade a spade? Can Can we just admit 
reliant to ourselves? It's hollow. It's empty. Are those things really enough to give you joy? Do they really satisfy your heart in the face of the brokenness of this world? But there is another way. There is a secret to unassailable joy. My wife told me I need to define that word. Um, So here you are, unassailable, adjective, not liable to doubt, attack, or question. In such strong position, it cannot be defeated, argued with, or attacked. It's unassailable. There is a secret to a joy that is unassailable. Rejoicing, a happiness that is not fragile, that is, in fact, untouchable. And the answer isn't to lower your standards, to find joy in in smaller, lesser, and lesser, and lesser things, but to raise your standards, to look higher still, to set our hope, our joy on something that cannot be shaken no matter what. Let me just invite you, turn your Bible with me to uh, Philippians chapter 1, I think, Poor Gavin got tired of waiting for me, um, but now's the key. If you don't have a Bible, slip up your hand, and we want to put one in your hand. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap. You're going to need it, I hope, I promise. Um, I hate to break it to you. I have nothing of value to say. I I come empty-handed. This is all I have. And so I don't want you walking out of here thinking, oh, that's interesting what that visiting preacher had to say, Um, but rather, wow, that's what what God's word has to say. Um, So I hope we'll spend our time together with our noses uh, in God's word. Little context here. Um, We're looking at the end of, uh, near the end of Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 18. Um, The first portion of this letter tells us that, that Paul's writing this from prison. And he's there for the very thing of, of preaching the gospel And yet this section ends in the middle of verse 18. You most likely have a paragraph right in the middle of the verse. You know, the the verse numbers aren't inspired. Those are just kind of added by us to help us find our way around. Um, But in the middle of verse 18, he, he says, the gospel still goes forward, and so I am still rejoicing. Not out of catch our eye. This this man in prison declaring, I am still rejoicing. But then you'll notice. this transition, there's a reason that paragraph break is there. The first part of verse 18, I am rejoicing. The second part of verse 18, yes, I will rejoice. That's huge. That is a massive transition right there. That shift from, from present tense to future tense. It's one thing to say, I am now rejoicing. All these things that have happened to me have not hampered, have not attacked, have not hurt my hope and my joy. It's an entirely different thing to say, no matter what comes, I will rejoice. Paul, how can you say that? You don't know the future. You don't know what circumstances will come, what pain and suffering might lie ahead. How how can you say with any confidence whatsoever, I will rejoice? And we're tempted to reinterpret that according to our strategy of, of finding joy as if Paul is saying, I am obligated to rejoice. And so even though I'm not happy, even though things aren't going well for me and I actually don't have joy, I will force myself to rejoice in some lower thing, no matter how miserable I am. And that is not what he's saying. This is a statement of joy. I will have real, meaningful joy that overflows into rejoicing no matter what happens. How can he say that? 
That's a shocking statement. And he can say that because he's found the secret of unassailable joy. So what is the secret? How do we get it? Well, fortunately for us, verse 18, he says, I will rejoice. And verse 19 begins with that word for, because. Here's why. Here's how. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Follow along as I read Philippians chapter 1, starting right in the middle of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope, I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause for glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Would you join me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you. God, your word is so precious, so rich, so full, and yet our hearts are so hard and so easily blinded and so easily distracted. God, would you open our eyes? Would you help us this morning to see the glory of who you are in the face of Jesus Christ? Lord, would you be at work in me this morning? Would you open my mouth to proclaim your word, Father? The words that I say would be true to your word and that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would be transforming us, God, that you would lift up the brokenhearted, that you would comfort those who need it, And Father, we ask too that you would break those of us who are in our pride who need to uh, see more clearly, God, that we would all come humbly before you uh, and that you might pour out your grace this morning on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just look at what Paul is saying. He's theoretically trying to choose between Life in prison and death. And he's excited. He's saying, I, I don't know which one is better. I don't know which one I would love more. Both are so great. <laughs> is he insane? No. No, he's found this secret to, to unassailable joy. And I think we can break this secret down under two headings, two basic answers. He has a sure hope and a singular focus. So first, he, he has a sure hope. And, and for that, I just want to stick in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. His, his first reason for that confidence is, is verse 19. For I know, I know, he, I, have, I have confidence, I have surety. And what is it that he knows? That this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, it would be easy to jump to conclusions here. 
What is it that Paul is talking about? He's just explained verses 12 and 13 how he's in prison. Certainly he says now, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking about setting free from prison. Isn't that the only logical answer? No. No, I don't think that's it. We think that because that would be Paul returning to all worldly comfort. His ability to chase his own dreams again. His return to freedom. These things that we would typically find our joy in. And a lot of people have gone this way. They, they claim to be Christians and, and they speak this way. I can rejoice. I will have joy because I know that God will set me free. That I will be healed from whatever pains me. That I will be provided for. I can be happy because I know that God will give me whatever it is that I want. And and that's just putting our joy back into those lesser things, those fragile things. And it's, it's making God a means to an end. And it's a confidence in something that that's God has simply not promised. You have no promise in scripture that you personally will be healed from anything. You have no promise from God that your family relationships will be restored. You have no promise from God that you won't in fact starve to death. Many Christians before you have. Why do we think we're any different? Confidence in God delivering you from the present trial um, is a misplaced joy. And it often leaves people feeling burnt by God. He doesn't give them what they wanted. He doesn't give them something that he never promised in the first place to give. Let's look a little closer at Paul's confidence. He's confident that he will be delivered. And then verse 20 explains what that deliverance might look like. Have a look. He says, as my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life Or by death. Uh, Paul, are you reading yourself here, buddy? Thought you were going to be delivered. Why do you say by life or by death? The, the, The allusion to death there is clearly his execution. What does it mean to be delivered in your death? Now, whatever he's talking about, whatever he means by that word deliverance, it's certainly not freedom from prison. It's something that he's confident will happen whether or not he lives or dies. I will be delivered even if I'm executed. Jesus talks this way. Look at Luke 21, verse 16. Jesus says, You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. Uh, Jesus... (laughs) So I'm going to be beheaded. My my neck will be chopped off, but my hair will be fine. What's he getting at? There's something deeper here. There's a deliverance that is far more than just a physical deliverance, just a worldly deliverance. It's helpful to note back in Philippians here, that word delivered is is the Greek word sozo. Um, It's used of salvation. I will be saved. And the phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, uh, he's actually quoting Old Testament scripture. He's quoting the book of Job, of all things. Job had everything taken away. 
Every worldly comfort that he had ripped out from underneath him. Think about Christmas at Job's house that year. His family gone. His career, his wealth stripped away. His health gone. Not not the merry little Christmas that he hoped it would be. And yet Job 13, he says, Though he slay me, even if God kills me, yet I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, my deliverance. Paul's echoing Job saying, no matter what, even if I die at the hand of Nero, even if God gives me over to him to death, I will be delivered. And it's not just Job, it's actually this theme runs all through the Psalms as well. God delivering the weak, the poor, the downcast. And and central to that theme is this idea, the words from, from Philippians verse 20, I will not be ashamed. Salvation, deliverance for Job and through the Psalms and for Paul doesn't mean every earthly suffering taken away. It's tied up with this idea of being vindicated, not being put to shame. Not getting to the end of my life and being laughed at or called a fool for how I live my life, for where I placed my hope and my joy. Now we're going to get more into the details of that soon. But right now I want to just hang up here on Paul's confidence. This unshakable joy. It comes from the fact that he has this this sure hope. His confidence that he will ultimately be delivered, that he will not in the end be put to shame. Do you have that kind of confidence? Do you live with that sure hope that no matter what happens, I will be delivered. I will be saved. I will not be put to shame. Not that your earthly trials will be taken care of, but that in the end, you will not be put to shame. You will not be let down by your hope. And that confidence is absolutely foundational to this unassailable joy where where confidence is lacking, uh, joy disappears. It's replaced by doubt and worry and insecurity. Christian, do you have that kind of confidence? Can you say, I know that my end will be deliverance? Now, I want to be careful here. Speaking about assurance is always tricky because there are some who do not have that assurance. They don't have that confidence and they absolutely should. And there are others who are fully confident and they absolutely should not be. So look carefully. The nature of Paul's confidence here. Be skeptical for a moment of your own confidence or lack of confidence. Put it up on the docket. Put it to the test. Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, Paul's confidence doesn't rest in that kind of singular future point. I made a decision back here. I said a prayer back here, and I know I'll be saved up there. No, Paul understands that it's going to come through their prayers, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit at work in him. His confidence includes a a process of salvation. It's no less sure. It's no less salvation by grace through faith. 
but it's much broader than that. He sees God's grace working progressively through the prayers of the saints, through the work of the Holy Spirit in him, bringing him along a path of salvation. Imagine you're drowning in the ocean. It's pitch black. You're miles offshore. The clothes you're wearing are saturated and heavy and pulling you down. The water is cold. Every wave crashes over your head, cutting off your already short breath. This is it. You have no hope, no chance of of saving yourself, of somehow making it to shore. And all of a sudden, through the, pierce, through the, the dark, pierces a light from a boat. And, and not just any boat, it's the Canadian Coast Guard. The most well-trained, highly successful rescue unit of all time. Their success rate is 100% of everyone they're called out to save. Sure enough, off the boat comes a rescue swimmer affixed to a rope, and he comes to you. And he wraps his arms around you. He tugs on the rope as a signal back and they begin to pull you both in. You have confidence now that you will be saved. You're not there yet. The boat and your warm home are still far away, but you have confidence that you will be saved. Why? Because you have confidence that you are being saved. It's not a blind hope. You currently feel the arms of your rescuer around you. You feel your head lifted up above the water. You can breathe again. You feel the movement of the water against your legs as you're pulled closer and closer to the boat and that light gets brighter and brighter. We ought to have assurance of our future salvation, but you can't somehow divorce that from our present experience of salvation. And there's some who are absolutely confident that they will be saved but they have no evidence that they are today being saved. Look at your life. Do you see the effects of the Savior at work saving you now? Do you see the Spirit of Jesus Christ in you producing a love for Christ, a hatred for sin? Are you currently being pulled out of the clutches of sin and closer to Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Do you see him sanctifying you, changing you? Are you growing progressively and and closer to him? Do you see that love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control welling up in you more and more this year than it was last year? And if the answer is no, then, then your confidence may well be misplaced. You should not expect to arrive at a destination that you're not currently traveling toward. John, uh, 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You can't have fellowship with God who is light while you continue on in darkness. They, they don't mix light and darkness. It makes you a liar. But as you're looking at this evidence of salvation and the answer is yeah I see that I am trusting Christ today I am growing in my love for him and my hatred towards sin and the things that used to have a tight grip on me are just a little bit looser today than they were yesterday yes I I stumble and fall and I do the things that I hate to do and, and some days I fall flat on my face into sin and yet I come back in repentance to Christ and I'm trusting in him and clinging to him then brother sister 
you ought to have confidence. You ought to be able to see the work of Christ in you and hang on to that. To see that rescuer, to feel his arms around you, to see that he is even now in the process of saving you and know for certain he will not fail. He will, as Philippians 1.6 says, complete the work that he has begun in you. And if you lack that confidence, you ought to seek it. We have to fight for it. Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. Are you earnestly seeking that full assurance? But seek it the right way. Go to the Lord in prayer. Pray as David prayed. Search me and know me. Test me, O God. Help me see myself more clearly. Spend time reading the word, reminding yourself of God's power to save and and seeing what that current ongoing salvation should look like. Does my life match up more and more with what I see in God's word? And live it out. Strive after it. Live in the spirit of Jesus Christ, growing in that visible work of the spirit in you. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Catch that. Earnestness to have full assurance. Diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What, what, are, what are these qualities? Well, it's verses 5 to 7. Just above that, it's faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, love. It's Peter's version of the fruit of the Spirit. Grow in these things. So if you want to have joy that is unassailable, you have to begin by laying that foundation of a a legitimate, biblically defensible confidence of my salvation. I see God at work in me now. And I have confidence that I will be delivered. Unassailable joy comes from that sure faith. But then on that sure faith is a singular focus. That's the second secret, a singular focus. Paul knows that he will rejoice because being 100% sure of this hope, he then wagers everything on it. Look at verses 20 to 26. It's so full. Let me read it again for us. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There's a lot there, and some of it we're just not going to get to this morning. But the crux of this passage is verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. 
That's his, his eager expectation and hope, his passion and joy, his one desire that Christ would be honored in his body in, in practical, visible, tangible ways, whether by life or by death. And no matter what happens to me, no matter what comes, be it freedom and ease and riches or imprisonment and suffering and wrongful execution, Paul says, I don't care how it happens. The road I take is irrelevant. My goal is that Christ be honored. For, because, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on to explain what he means by that. To live as Christ means verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I'm going to continue, it's Christ. My life will be spent in fruitful labor. His entire life has one focus. It's living and working for Christ. Verses 25 and 26 explain a little more precisely what that fruitful labor is. It's to continue with them for their progress, their joy in the faith. It's working among the saints, serving the church. It's our mission statement that we share between the redemption churches. Lost people saved, saved people mature, mature people multiply to the glory of God. And here's why, verse 26, that in his work in serving Christ among them, there would be ample cause to glory in Christ that Jesus would be honored in his life. And and, and think about, notice how this contributes to Paul's joy, his rejoicing. Because labor uh, is not something we typically associate with rejoicing, is it? I don't. Um, Most of us don't rejoice with labor. We dread it. Going back to work next week. Yay. Holidays are over. Back to labor. No, labor isn't joy. But fruitful labor, fruitful labor is something entirely different. That produces something of value. There's a a benefit, there's a gain at the end that makes it all worth it. And his labor in the Lord, his serving the church is a fruitful labor. What's the fruit? What is it that he's looking to gain out of this labor? I think he's looking directly at the promises of Christ. Matthew 16, 27, Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. They'll be rewarded. Their labor will be fruitful. Again, Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Don't labor for earthly things. Don't don't put your your joy in in fragile, temporary hopes that can be stolen and broken. But lay up for yourselves, work, labor for treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, where there is an unassailable joy. Work for heavenly rewards. Fruitful labor, serving Christ and living for him. That's what Paul's after. He's after that eternal reward. That's why it's so sure. That's where his confidence lies in rejoicing because his joy is not resting on gaining comfort or ease or or friends or food or whatever else in this world. 
Those things, those fragile things are just not his goal. His goal is to honor Christ, to lay up treasure, to store up rewards that bring him a joy that cannot be touched, to live as Christ. And because of that, he can say, to die is gain. Because death brings him into the presence of Christ, right? And that, the end of verse 23, is far better. Because death is to finally come into possession of everything he's been laboring for. It's to gain the fruit of that, that labor. And so to live is to store up more treasure in heaven and to, to labor for more fruit and to die is, is payday. So I don't know which one's better. I don't know which to choose. Now, it's not that he literally has a choice. That's, that's in the hands of the Lord. He knows that. But he's saying, I don't know which one I would choose, theoretically. To stay here is more fruitful labor. To store up more treasure. To die is to, is to be done. To retire. To cash out. And I think that's what he's talking about. Verse 25 when he says, Convinced of this, I know I will remain. I don't think he's making a prediction of the future. Um, actually, best we can guess, uh, he does not return to them, um, but does die there at the hands of Nero. But he's saying, Convinced that my continued life would only increase my reward to come, that's the one I'm, I would choose. That's what I'm convinced I would take if I had the choice. But let's... Let's not get lost in the details. Let's go back to verse 21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He has a singular focus. Nothing else matters. Nothing matters but that Christ is honored in his body and whether that happens by life or by death, it doesn't matter. He has one goal. And that's how he can say with absolute confidence, I will rejoice. Because all of his hope, all of his joy is hung on that which can never be taken from him. Think about what it means to say to die is gain. That is a radical statement. What is death except the loss of every worldly thing? It's the loss of your money. It's the loss of your time. It's the loss of your family, at least for a time. Uh, it's the loss of your career, of every toy and trinket you've accumulated. It's every worldly comfort. It's every hope and dream you had from the future taken away, gone. And Paul says the loss of all of that would be gain. Can you say that? Can you make that statement? I got to admit, I have a hard time making that statement. Most things, yeah, everything. We got to wrestle with our hearts on this. We believe that there will be joy in following Christ, right? Or we wouldn't be here this morning. But we also want to pick up as many worldly joys as we can along the way. It feels just a little bit too risky to put it all on Christ. Will he really be enough? And so we take a little bit of joy. We, we put a little bit into our career and, and into our family and into our hope of retirement and rest one day and, and any number of things. We, we go by that old adage, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But Paul didn't hedge his bets. He, he didn't go 70-30 in for Christ. He went all in on Jesus. He is going for broke. And he would plead with you. When it comes to those precious eggs of your joy, put them all in the secure basket of Christ. Because there and only there will your joy be full 
and safe. When you can say to live is Christ and to die is gain, when you have that, that singular focus, it doesn't mean everything is easy. It doesn't mean that life is all of a sudden fun. But it means you can continue with this confident hope through any circumstances because your joy has been lifted up out of the fray. It's now unassailable by these earthly storms. Think about it. If you hang your hope on the fragile joy of having a good marriage. Oh, if only I could be married. If only my marriage was healthier, was better, was fuller in some way. That would give me joy. Marriage in which I'm loved or respected that meets my needs. If your hope hangs there and your spouse fails to deliver, which they will, that joy is gone. That joy is struck. But if to live is Christ and your goal in life and therefore your goal in your marriage isn't to find hope and joy in the marriage, but to use our marriage to honor Christ. And that's where my ultimate joy is hung. Then my marriage, if it fails to deliver what I hoped it would, maybe things grow cold. Maybe he doesn't love you the way you wish he would. Maybe she doesn't respect you the way you expected her to. It's not fun. It's not easy but I'm not crushed. I still have my hope in Christ. I have my joy in him and I can still fulfill that ultimate goal even through a broken marriage. As I trust him through it, as I live faithful to him in the midst of the storm. Or maybe you've hung your hope on that fragile joy of comfort and ease in this life. Oh, I just want to make enough money that I can enjoy the weekends. That I can come home and, and sit back in a nice house and, and enjoy the finer things in life. Go on holidays in the summer. And suddenly you're struck by debilitating disease. What do you do? That joy is gone. It's dashed to pieces. But if the focus of your life is to glorify Christ, if your eyes are set on a life that is, that is working towards storing up that joy in heaven, then you have this amazing opportunity to worship Christ through suffering. To see Christ honored in your body in a way that no healthy person can do. As you declare by your worship through pain that, that Christ is better than comfort. And your suffering becomes no less painful but rather than stealing your fragile joy, it is a valuable tool and a unique opportunity to actually increase your joy. And you can actually rejoice in and through and even for suffering. Do you see why God so often allows worldly pain and loss for his children? We need it. We need to have our hearts the roots of our hearts kind of cut loose from the things of this world. We need to have those joys shaken so that we can learn to put our hope in him, to trust him a little more. If your joy rests on any earthly thing, it's fragile at best. 
It's threatened on countless fronts and it is necessarily limited to the span of this short life. If you want to have that joy unassailable, if you want to have confidence that Paul here declares, to be able to say, yes, I will rejoice without a doubt, no matter what comes, then you need to set your heart on this singular focus. You take every other aspect of your life and you bend it toward Christ. Why do I keep coming to this job? To honor Christ. Why do I stay in this broken, painful marriage? To honor Christ. Why do I continue to live through this pain that afflicts me? To honor Christ. Because I have a joy ahead. Because I'm storing up treasure in heaven. That's my source. Be diligent. Be weary of yourself. Watching, where do I find my identity? Where do I find my purpose? What drives me? Where do I find purpose and meaning in this life and set it all on that one great goal that Christ would be honored in your body by life or by death? If life, that's fruitful labor for me. It's to worship and serve Christ. Now that doesn't mean pastoral ministry. We get so hung up on this kind of sacred secular divide. Absolutely not. Your life can be 100% towards serving Christ as you go to any job. And as you come here Sunday morning, as you gather with your small groups midweek, as you're building up the church, right? It's not about one person serving the church. It's about the church growing together, speaking the truth in love to one another, encouraging one another, building one another up. And it's gain. It's fruitful labor. Now, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy the things of this world. That doesn't mean we don't rejoice in in the beauty of Christmas. And as we have family gathered, we, we enjoy that. As we have good gifts given to us, we rejoice in those things. That's good and right. But there's a difference between enjoying those things as good gifts from God and, and hanging our joy on them, rooting our joy in them. Rather than in Christ. And I want to be assured again, this is not a lesser joy. This is not lowering the bar. Uh, we, we tend to spiritualize this, which in our minds um, makes it less. Our hearts, we feel like we're making some kind of sacrifice to, to give up what's actually really fun for some spiritual joy that, that happens in the future. And, and that, you know, I'm supposed to enjoy that. No. No, this is not an obligation. This is an invitation. This is not a lesser joy that will come. Eternal joy is not less real or full or meaningful. But it does require faith as we look forward to it. But Jesus promised, Luke 18, Verses 29 and 30, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. You will be rewarded and a reward that you will say, this is so much better. This is many times greater. Not one person will get to heaven and say, oh, I wish I had just taken a little more from this earth along the way. I wish that that my heart had been a little bit more divided when I was here on earth. I wish that I had just been a little bit more selfish with my money and, and given less to those in need and given less to the church. 
I wish I had enjoyed just a little more sin. I missed out on that as I was serving Christ. I wish I had spent a little more time building my own kingdom and my own pride and my own influence rather than that of Christ. It won't happen. It won't happen. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, for whoever would save his life, so whoever would find his joy, his meaning and purpose in this earthly life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever gives up the things of this world, who who pulls their hearts out from these earthly joys and sets their heart on honoring Christ and putting their hope in his eternal reward will find it. He'll find life. For whatever, what, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Church, that's, that's joy unassailable. That's something that, that I can have confidence in and say, I will rejoice. I will not be put to shame. I have a sure hope. I am absolutely 100% confident and I have a singular focus. My life has one unified purpose. Let everything else become background. Set your life on serving Christ, on honoring him with every gift that he's given you, with every circumstance that comes your way, that Christ would be honored in your body, whether by life or by death, by, by suffering or by health by wealth or by poverty, by joyful marriage or painful perseverance, by a prosperous career or a life of humble service, never seeing a single promotion. Do it all for the glory of Christ and you will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us that you have given us a hope of joy that cannot be touched, God, you know how quickly we get wrapped up in the things of this world, how easily our hearts are distracted and pulled aside and how crushed we become when when things don't turn out the way we wished they would. God, help us break the strongholds of those fragile joys in our lives. God, we pray whatever it takes If that means bringing suffering, bring suffering. Lord, we want our hearts set on you. We want to be able to say with Paul, I will rejoice because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, open our eyes again to see your glory, to set our hearts on that, to trust in you. God, that you would be honored in us by life or by death. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.